Welcome to the pod of European legends and folklore. And this is the first episode, The Sunken Castle. Let's start by listening to the story. It was the night of 24 December. A thick layer of snow was lying on the ground. A strong icy breeze was blowing through the air. It was bitter cold. A tired monk was stumbling through the snow, hoping to find a place to stay for the night. Finally, he sees light. It's a castle. With a heavy knocker, he knocks on the door. After a short while, a viewing window opens and a voice asks him what he wants. For God's will, bread and a place to stay, the monk answers. The door opened and they allowed the monk in. He arrived in a big hall where a group of men and women had a wild party. They took his staff and were laughing at him. Shocked as he was, the pilgrim so items which remembered him of the buck riders. Now he knew in what kind of company he was. He was forced to join them in the wild orgy, but he refused. He told the gang members they were sinful and called their leader a thief and murderer who desecrated the holy Christmas Eve. Furious with anger, the buck riders threw the monk out of the castle. Pilgrim stood up, turned to the castle and cursed the castle and the inhabitants. The earth shook and the castle collapsed. The earth opened underneath the castle and slowly the castle sunk into the depths of the earth. Then the earth closed above the castle and a swamp was formed. The next morning churchgoers found the frozen pilgrim. Wilhelmina, a baroness of Frankenberg and Proschlitz, who lived from 1794 till 1863, daughter of the second mayor of Udenhout, wrote in her diary that as a child she played on a rune in the mortal, which people called the sunken castle. Still, when you put your ears on the ground of the sunken castle at Christmas Eve, you hear the bells strike 12 times. What's true about the story? It's a legend, that's for sure. Of course it was impossible that an entire castle would disappear. Still, there was some kind of strange event. Why would they make up such a story? The legend refers to the mortal, exactly the place where in 2017 21 Roman graves were found. So clearly it's an area with a lot of history. In the 18th century, there was a rune of a fortified farm in the, in the mortal. In the middle of the 19th century, many old buildings in Brabant were destroyed. Also, this 
rune was destroyed. It's quite possible that buck riders used such a rune as a hiding place. And Natalie, common folk would be quite impressed when a gang of buck riders was living near their village. We know that at Christmas Eve 1755 there was a small earthquake near Udenhout. So could the story be true? So a story about buck riders in a castle. The story has two interesting main components. Buck riders and a second castle in Udenhout. A second castle, yes. The first is still standing though. In this podcast, I'm going to analyze the castle and the buck riders. Let's first look at the history of the buck riders. The buck riders arose amidst the decline of the Republic of the Seven United Netherlands, the first independent Dutch country which arose after the 80 years war with Spain. The Dutch Republic existed from 1588 till the French invasion in um, 1795. Our area of interest, Limburg and Brabant, were never a part of the Dutch Republic. They were called Generaliteitslanden and were more or less just occupied territory. Next to the vision in being a real part of the country and just being occupied, there was a religious difference. Where occupied territory was mainly Roman Catholic, and the Republic was mainly Protestant. When there is a decline in the country, which citizens are going to pay the pill? The real citizens or the ones in the occupied territory? So when the going gets tough, the tough gets going, especially for occupied territory. Limburg and Brabant were poor and the citizens even poorer. In Dutch and Belgian archives, there's information on buck rider trials from 1726 till 1794. All trials were mainly in Dutch and Belgian Limburg. Buck riders were gangs of thieves, murderers, who especially targeted farmers, monasteries and churches. They were organized as gangs and had certain rights. They consisted mainly of poor people, but it's known from trials in Limburg that certain buckrider gangs had leaders from the nobility, which most often had big debts due to their lifestyle and the economical decline. So, most buckriders got into the game out of poverty. But why were they called buckriders? Did they truly ride on bucks to the sky? Have you ever seen Somebody riding a goat through the sky? I'm not. Buck riders used a kind of black magic with which they tried to get possessed by the devil. The goal of the devilish magic was to rob and plunder in the name of the devil, like they were searching some kind of blessing. Next to an oath to become a buck rider, there were more rites in which they used bread from the Catholic Church, which is named the host. They used alcohol, absinthe, a certain red oil, a cut of hand and a cut of human head. And of course they rode on bucks through the sky. At least some arrested buck riders confessed riding on goats. I don't need to remind you that torture was quite common in the 18th century. 
After the first trials, where the robbers were called Buck Riders, more gangs used the name Buck Riders because it made such a good impression on the common folk. A tactic some Buck Riders used was asking for protection money. Mostly protection against fire, if you get what I mean. In historical literature they are called Brandbrieven, which if you translate it to English would be fire letters. But I don't know if that, that really makes sense. But you get the point, you pay us money and nothing will happen to your beautiful farm or your cozy uh, little monastery. No. Quite a sort, sort of insurance. Okay, but what about this black magic? Buck riders believed that they could get the power of the devil when they desecrated the host. So they stole the bread of Christ from churches to desecrate it. Desecrating by eating it half, spitting it out, trample the host under the foot and probably other creative things you can do with a piece of bread. Some gangs used a green substance, probably absinthe, to come into a possessed state. During interrogation, a criminal said that after using the green substance, he became utterly drunk and evil as if he was possessed by the devil himself. Possibly it was not only absinthe, but other herbs were added, like belladonna and datura, herbs which were also used by witches, which the common folk believed. Okay. So literature also mentions a red oil. In a few trials a bitter red oil is mentioned, which was added to meat before eating it. It would also help to get in the correct atmosphere. Some buck riders use the cut of fist for black magic ritual. They put a candle in the fist and lit the fire. Often they would use it in combination with the bread of Christ. Also the use of a cut of head is mentioned, although it's not clear how it was used. In the period between 1726 and 1794 there were multiple gangs of buck riders active. As we know they were not connected. They were not connected. There was no central structure. There was no church of buck riders or anything. The buck rider phenomena had two main reasons. The first one was poverty and the second high taxes because of the many wars that, that were taking place in, in Europe. Poverty, but there were always poor people, true. But there is enough evidence that the inflation was enormous, which made the poor even poorer. So, in a very hard economical area, uh, era, a brotherhood came to life, a brotherhood of robbers. In a few trials, the buck riders confessed that they called each other confrère, brother. Was the buck rider community only a brotherhood of robbers or was it something more? The buck riders certainly had a religious aspect. When you have nothing left to lose and God does not come to your aid, is it possible that people are willing to switch sides and start worshipping the devil in the hope that he will help change their miserable life? There is proof that some buck rider groups lived in a commune with a communistic structure in which they were all equal and shared everything, inclusive their wives. The congregation of buck riders had rules in which rights and obligations were defined. Members had the obligation to find new members, 
had an obligation for secrecy, but did get money when they became a member. Also they would get food and, when necessary, a roof. Members of the congregation helped each other. It was a true fraternité. With the French occupation by the troops of Napoleon and the structural changes to society, the Buckrider phenomenon ceased to exist. And we're speaking then about 1795. Well, enough for this moment about the history of the Buckriders as a society. A congregation of devil-worshipping criminals flying on goats through the sky. It's time to introduce Udenhout. Udenhout is a small village in Brabant. And like I mentioned in the first pod, the introduction, I talked about Brabant. So Udenhout is in, in, in the north of Brabant. And it was first mentioned in the late Middle Ages in 1232, when the Abbey of Tongelo got rights to the forest in Udenhout. At that time, Udenhout was a community which consisted of something like eight farms. Archaeological findings show that Udenhout is much older. In 2017, 21 Roman graves were found near from the river Romlai. This small river, the Romlai, and the higher ground around it is probably one of the main reasons people cho chose it to build their farms there. On my YouTube channel, channel, I have a few movies about this subject and my metal detector searches in this specific area where I did find some neat stuff. Udehout was more or less a part of the city of Oosterwijk, but did have their own major. The taxes still went to the city of Oosterwijk. In the beginning of this podcast, I was speaking about the second castle. Well, it's a bit complicated. Our castle will be known as the second castle, but was the first castle. You see, Castle Strijdhoef was built in 1760, and that's a bit later than our castle, from which we know nothing. Well, almost nothing. In my YouTube film, you can see that I searched for the location of the castle, and I did find it. I show aerial photos, in which you even can see the moat. Udenhout in the 18th century was a nice place for criminals. Dutch Republic was a federation. It was more a political and economic federation. It was not one country with a nationwide police force. To the north of Udenhout lies the Brand, which still exists and is a swamp. North from the Brand are the Loonse and Drunse Duinen, which is an inland dune area. And at those days Udenhout was very close to the border with the Duchy of Holland, so criminals could use the rural area to stay safe. So Udenhout was a farmer's community, near from rural areas and near from the border with Holland. There are some stories of buck riders in Brabant, but not so detailed as those in Limburg. I've introduced the buck riders and their history. I've introduced the sunken castle from which we know the ruin existed until the 19th century. We know there were buck riders active in Brabant and we know there was a castle ruin in Udenhout. We also know the castle did not sink into the ground. I have no clue about buckriders in Udenhout, or was a buckrider in Brabant more or less an analogy for a brutal criminal? I've explained why Udenhout was interesting for criminals. So, it's time to introduce the hero of our story. Kostnia Stofmeel was born on 16 March 1687 in Linnig his father was Johan Stoifmeel and his mother's family name was Rakken, the first name of the mother we don't know. 
He became a professional soldier and joined the light cavalry of the Prince von Hessen-Kassel as an infanterist. He was garrisoned in Geertruinenberg in Brabant. There he met his bride, Johanna Bastian Snellaars. After the marriage on 19 April 1716, he made a career move, went to live with his wife in Tilburg. He became nightcaller and Bedelvogt. The Bedelvogt was a kind of police officer who was responsible for removing beggars from the city. In the period between 1720 and 1729, the pair got five children, Johannes, Dimfna, Cornelius, Guglielmus and Johannes. His downfall started in 1722 with illegal poaching. He was caught and first of all removed from office. The office of Nightcaller and Bedelvogt, which was held before by his father-in-law. But after supports from local citizens, Kostian was restored in office, although in another neighborhood. When and what the motivation was is not clear, but in 1727, Kostian rebranded his criminal career. It seems he started to rob braggers, together with the Bedelvogt van Gorle, Anthony van Dalen. In the papers of the trial is the beggar Jacob Robertson mentioned, who was molested by Korstian and handed over 800 guilders. In 1727 that was quite an amount of money, not the amount one would expect with a beggar. It's almost the same amount of money I paid for my first computer in 1983, but that's something completely different. In the trial papers is also the robbery of the miller's wife mentioned. From 1727 till the arrest of Korstian the story is quite vague. It's mentioned that the whole family was on the run. Finally they were arrested and on the 28th of April 1730 a trial was held and Korstian was convicted. Stofmeel diende door de meester de scherpe gerechten met de koorden worden geschraft dat de dood naar volgen. So, on the 1st May of 1730, Kostian was hung on the heuvel in Tilburg. We'll never know why he became an aggressive criminal. We do know that Kostian and his family was on the run. From the trials it's known that they went to the Kulkerland and to Sertogenbos. But they were away for two years. Now think about it. What would you do if you had a criminal career? Would you tell them the place where you had been hiding? We do know that they knew Udenhout, and we do know that his wife Johanna stayed there for a while. It is possible that they lived in the old room. Is it possible that the life of the criminal Korstian Stofmeel was one of the inspiration sources of the source of, of the story of the sunken castle? This is all speculation, of course. For a criminal on the run, with contacts in Tilburg, Udenhout is not a bad choice, as I have discussed before. Johanna Bastian Snellers was born around 1694 in Tilburg, as we now know she was the widow of Kostian Stofmeel. On the same day as her husband was Johanna Snellers also convicted. She was guilty of fencing stolen goods and threatening of witnesses. She was convicted and banished from life, for life from the heerlijkheid of Tilburg and Goorn. But after five years she returned to Tilburg, was arrested and banished again. Interesting fact was that her eldest son confessed that they had been in Udenhout. We know from literature and from observation that there was a small fortified castle or farm in Udenhout. 
No other literature which mentions bug writers in Uthaus than the story with which I started this podcast. Were Kostian and Johanna bug writers? Did the people call them bug writers? There is no proof of that. The only proof we had is that both had a criminal career. They were in Uthaus and there is a whole of two years from 1728 till 1713 in their activities. Kostian was born in the heartland where the buck rider stories came from so he probably could know some of the stories and they had to live somewhere had to eat had to drink so my best guess is they continued their career or started to work as a farmhand or something like that why did i choose from all the possible criminals for Christian and johanna well first of all the story of Christiana Johanna is very well documented. So that's the first thing. Second, the couple was active in a period there was bug rider activity. And last, they are my grandparents in the ninth generation. I want to thank, thank John van Erve for his magnificent work in deducting all the facts from the trials against Christiana and Johanna. He has written a nice paper about the subject in Dutch. It's called Klepperman. Op verkeerde pad and is written in 2017. Thank you for listening to my pod and uh, don't know when I will be back. My next story is uh, probably about uh, the walking statue in Sertogenbos, but that's uh, another case. Feel free to comment, your support is welcome, and uh, I'll hope to bring out my next pod in a few weeks. Thank you.